Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, we love Burger King Grilled Dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Laurie, your host, and welcome to part two of this podcast. Some of you may have listened to part one first, some of you may be here first. Either way, welcome. And as I explained on that one, the challenge with this episode was that I had so much great material that I didn't feel I could put it all in one episode, and I didn't want to cut anything more than I already did. So instead of having a more than two hour long podcast, I split it into two, and the other podcast has Ronnie Singh, Ronnie2K of 2K and Ethan Sherwood's Jaws of ESPN. This one is the first part of what I hope to be a 30-part series, which is The Eliminated. And the idea of The Eliminated is started with a column that I wrote, I think, three years ago for Real GM, and it's to really go more in-depth on a team and talk about what their summer is going to look like, talk about the big decisions that they need to make. And so go through the lay of the land, go through the draft, go through free agency, everything. And the first team is the Boston Celtics. Part of that is because I knew exactly who I wanted to have on, and they're both friends of the show. Andrew Perna of Real GM and Jared Weiss, who is the Celtics locker room reporter and host of the Garden Report on CLNS Radio, and he does Celtics blog work. And so I wanted to have them on. Also, this is the first ever two guests at the same time, so a three-person podcast. It was a lot of fun to do. The only challenge with it was as it recorded, not as it sounded to us at the time. There are a couple times that the feeds kind of merge a little bit, and so what happens in most of those is that the answer of the guest runs over my question, and that wasn't them talking over me when it happened. It's just the way that the recording went. I think there was a two- or three-second delay 
on that receiving, and that's fine. And I think you can hear all the questions fine. I think you can hear all the answers fine. But if you hear any weirdness, it's a tech issue. It's not anything else. And hopefully that will be fixed in the future ones, but I don't consider it a big problem anyway. This conversation runs about 50 minutes. It was so much fun to do. We hit on a lot of stuff, going Rajon Rondo, Brad Stevens, a healthy discussion of Giannis, because I thought that the situation was really interesting. So I hope you enjoy it. It is the absolute template for what I would like to do with the Eliminated series. They probably won't all be this long, because if they do, then they won't all fit in before July 1st or before the draft or anything. But this was the prototype. There, It was so much fun, the chemistry was good, and I hope you enjoy it half as much as I enjoyed recording it because it was one of the most fun things I've done hosting Real Jam Radio. So the Celtics are in a really interesting situation because of both the amount of resources that they have, but also the amount of money and flexibility that they have on the books. So I wanted to actually start with a little bit going through what you see as the more interesting assets that they have moving forward. Well, okay, I can start with that. I mean, for me, it's I think it's more fascinating from just the how how the league is going to react to how this is valued. But the first round picks that they have coming from Brooklyn a few years from now, we saw how the Celtics valued those down the road first round picks. They were valued pretty heavily. And so how valuable are they on the trade market again coming into this offseason? Because the Celtics are sitting on such a massive stockpile of picks that there's no point in keeping all of them because there's not going to be enough roster spots to draft all since the Brooklyn pick in 2016. How valuable does that is that pick around the league? And obviously the Celtics want to put together a trade for some sort of mega player, whether it's Kevin Love or whoever else is going to be available over the next couple trade seasons. But they're going to be, rather than what they were doing last time when they got Kevin Garnett and putting together a bunch of young uh, prospects, it's probably going to be something like Jared Solinger and a bunch of these first-round draft picks. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how valuable are these future first-round picks that, that another team would give up a player in his prime as opposed to the Celtics, who were giving up players that were well past their prime. You know, absolutely, with what Jared says, in regards to the draft picks, they're going to have to deal one. I think it's going to come down to, do they want to deal a pick sooner or later? It's all going to relate to how they attack this offseason. And before, I think, they get into that long-term view of whether they deal a 2016 pick or who they may go after, I think this summer we're going to see some things come up with some short-term guys, guys like Brandon Bass and Chris Humphreys, who are going to be expiring deals who may be attractive to a more contending team at somewhat reasonable value. So I think you're going to see those types of things happen, both the pick shopping and the players. And it's really all going to relate to um, the major elephant in the room, which I'm sure we'll discuss a little later. Yeah. And the other thing that I was intrigued by for you guys is what players that they already have on roster, and we'll exclude Rajon Rondo from this, do you think are the players that they should be most interested in keeping around as opposed to trading? Like, is there anybody that you say, including trades, this guy's a keeper? Uh, you know, personally, on my end, I don't think there's really anybody that they should label untouchable at this point, just to the position that they're in. Like Garrett mentioned, with all the draft picks, you also, in addition to the roster spots, you probably don't want to build a roster from the ground up that's full of first second and third year players it's not going to be good for the development of those players and in turn the development of your team but you know there's obviously going to be some people that they're probably hold on to i think 
the Rondo debate is won. I think they like Sullinger, but again, like Jared also points out, he's probably a good package player for those picks. Avery Bradley will be a discussion. I think right now you're probably looking at Kelly Olenek as somebody as they'll probably keep to see if they can develop him. I'd like to see them, oddly enough, keep Gerald Boss as a veteran presence also because I really don't think he's tradable. But uh, I'd be interested to see who Jared thinks is, is somebody that should keep within that core as they go forward making moves. Yeah, uh, for me, Jared Solinger is the only player that there's there's not like there's not really a goal to try to trade him. It's really the Kevin Love concept makes a lot of sense because Kevin Love's only three years older, and it's basically the player that the Celtics hope Jared Solinger would be because they have so many similar skill sets. Kevin Love is, of course, he's been in the league a lot longer. He just came into the league very young, uh, but he's only he's only three years older than him, I think, right now. So that's really the player that makes sense is trading Jared Solinger for Kevin Love. But otherwise. There's no point of trading horizontally value-wise or even trading down with Jared Solinger. He's a guy that shows a lot of promise, and uh, he hurt his hand and his wrist earlier this year, and he hasn't been the same since then. He's been coming off the bench, and it, it's been a weird second half of the season for Solinger. And, of course, there's been a running storyline of him chucking up threes at an abysmal rate and whether he should keep doing that. That's kind of been a fun debate over the last year or so with Solinger. But I think... He's really the only guy that I see as there's no point of actively trying to trade him because he's just got so much value, and he's on such a cheap contract. He's only making a million and a half, and to get that kind of production and promise out of a player making such little money right now, that's a pretty incredible asset. But there's younger guys like Kelly Olynyk that uh, – Olynyk is, is a nice player, but the fact is, is that they might be drafting another power forward at the top of the draft this year, and Kelly Olynyk might be the odd man out in that front court rotation. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were looking to trade Kelly Olenek within the next couple of years, whether or not they just think that he could be a, a good trade player or they just don't have the room for him. I, I agree 100% about him being, you know, somebody that they may want to hold on to and somebody they'd only trade if it was an improvement rather than just a lateral move. And I know there's a ton of debate. We probably don't have time to get into it, but I don't see Solinger as somebody that even in a few years will even be a pseudo Kevin Love. They do have similar games. I just don't see him making the progression that Love does. I don't think he has as high of a ceiling. Um, I know there were a lot of teams that were scared off by his back when he came into the draft, and then you know he, he had his rookie year shut down early because of that. For some teams, I think that's kind of checked that off and said, okay, you know, the Celtics say the surgery kind of cleared those chronic problems. I know there's probably some teams that are also thinking, okay, when is it going to flare up again? So while, you know, He's a good guy, and the Celtics would love to see him blossom to that Kevin Love. I'm not sure that that's you know, a proper comparison at this point. The other question that I had for both of you guys, because you're far closer to it, is defensively, do you see Sullinger as a guy who can defend both power forwards and centers, or is he more of a pure power forward or more of a pure center? Because obviously that affects the way that they're going to build the team if they think of him as a well, potential piece in the long term. The thing is, there's so many power forwards in the league getting forced to play center. Like, he's not the only one. So, I mean, the, he can match up against guys like Al Horford or whatever, but he's had some success earlier this year guarded Roy Hibbert very well in a couple matchups. He has been effective against guys that are a lot taller than him because he's got a he's got a pretty good IQ on both ends. He's got a really good low center of gravity and he's good on the block pushing guys off. So he does that well, but he's not he's not a rim protector. He's just a he's a solid one-on-one defender. And the, and the Celtics just keep getting exposed for not having a rim protector. And though, although Chris Humphreys has been having one of his best seasons manning the pivot in his, of his entire career this year, he still gets exposed constantly. The Celtics get exposed constantly. Their biggest priority right now is improving their low post defense. And the answer for that is really just getting, I mean, 
Joel Embiid obviously would be the most desirable, assuming that he can walk, of course. He'd be the most desirable uh, option there. But their their major priority is getting Jared Solinger to be a four, to be able to work kind of 15 feet out from the rim, not be responsible for covering the pivot defensively. I think those are probably their priorities for Solinger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's a guy who I'm comfortable guarding pretty much any power forward, I guess. I mean, if, you, if we really want to drag in like Kevin Love, then Kevin Love isn't the greatest defender either. But, you know, I'm comfortable with him guarding a power forward. He has helped his own against centers. And in reality, um, how many centers in the Eastern Conference does he really have to worry or concern himself with defensively? Yeah, he's going to play Roy Hibbert three, four times a year, big whoop, even against Miami. You know, who do they have that's a bigger guy? Not really anybody that he can't guard. So I'm more comfortable with him at the power forward, and I agree with Jared that I think that defense as a whole becomes a hell of a lot better if they can get themselves a traditional center rim protector just down the rest of the lineup. I think they'll become a much stronger defensive unit. So moving on to what I consider the big question with the Celtics team, which is in some ways a two-parter, but it's basically just Rajon Rondo. And for what I'm most interested for you guys is what do you think they will do and what would you do if you were in control of the team? What would I do? I personally would set a deadline for myself of uh, this summer, which I think is pretty obvious, um, first of all, because with a player like Rondo, you, can't, you don't want to go into limbo next season with him not – you know, having a deal passed next summer. So do you extend him? Do you trade him? you got to make that move this summer. And with the amount of picks that the uh, Celtics have, you also, I think, have to make that decision in probably early June, internally at least, to gauge who you're going to look at in the draft and who you might target. So I think that decision is actually coming up really soon. And personally, if I were them, if I was Danny Age, I'd listen to calls but probably ultimately keep him. You're not going to strip this team down completely. You know, you talk about a rebuild. If you say from this, from last year to this year they stripped things down, maybe, what, 30%, 40%, do you really want to go and strip Rajon Rondo down and really take yourself down a whole new notch? You're going to have those draft picks. You have Rondo. You have those few players that you may like to develop and, and eventually become your core. And then what do you want to use with that flexibility that we talked about, the expiring deals that they have for next year, a little bit of cap space, Instead of putting a team together right away and hoping to contend within two, maybe three years, if you trade Rondo, you know, are you setting yourself back to four, five, six years? And that's really what I think it would be. So if, if I'm Danny Ainge, I'm keeping Rondo, and that's how I'm that's how I'm attacking the draft, and that's how I'm attacking this summer. Well, where would Rondo go? Who would Rajon Rondo rather play for than the Celtics? Obviously, the Celtics aren't very good right now, but... Rondo has had a for all the issues that he's had over the years his his place in the franchise and his relationship with the organization has always been very strong and he's people make a lot more of a big deal about Danny Ainge hypothetically or reportedly shopping him than it seems like the people inside the locker room do and Rondo is kind of I think he even said recently and he said it many times is that he's a big fan of Danny Ainge he knows that Danny Ainge is constantly on the phone constantly gauging things and he's a risk taker and that's what he likes about Danny I think he actually just said that a couple of days ago so I don't think Rondo has any desire to leave Boston and he's, he's he's got pretty good roots in Boston 
He's fairly popular here. He's adored by the kids, at least. Uh, he, he gets pretty mixed uh, reactions from the general public, though. But uh, there's not a lot of organizations out there that Rondo would rather be a part of. And like he's he's from Lexington, Kentucky, so it's not like he could like sign with the Mavericks and go back home or something like that, like a lot of guys end up doing. It's that he's there's no team in Kentucky, so he's not really majorly inclined to try to go back home, be near their family, stuff like that. For him, it's really just about being in an organization where he has faith that they're going to be capable of building a winning ball club. And Boston is far from that point of being a winning ball club, but they're one of the franchises that you can have a lot of faith in to be able to build that back up. And there's not, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of organizations that you can have that level of confidence in. And you know, the, the other ones like San Antonio, for instance, stuff, something like that, Tony Parker is going to be 34 when Rondo's uh, going to be able to sign a free agency deal. So the likelihood of him going there to replace Tony Parker is pretty slim. There's there's not a lot of options for him. The Lakers might have all their cap space open. The Knicks might have cap space open, and maybe they can make a move at that point. But there's not a lot of places that you say to yourself, we're worried about that place taking Rondo from the Celtics. It's really just more so of do the Celtics think that they should be paying max money to Rajon Rondo? And for all the frustrations with Rondo and the questions of whether or not he can be a 20-point scorer and all that, you look at the other guys around the league that get max contracts, and there's so many players that are not nearly as capable, dynamic, and dominant a player that he is. So it's pretty obvious that he's worth max money. I mean, those are great points, I think. And I think we kind of have the longest lines of the same point. As I think it's going to be, if it came down to it, he would resign with them does Danny roll the dice and he loves that Danny Ainge is kind of a gambler and and that's why I think when you're dealing with the Celtics or when you are on the Celtics you can't take those types of things personally because Ainge is always going to talk he's always going to talk about you he's always going to take calls he's shown that he's not going to be Mr. Sentimental we saw last summer and it really suits Rondo and the team that Rondo is not really bothered by that I think that's that makes them a great match and, you know, there doesn't seem to be a place that would take him, as Jared says, you know, currently the landscape changes. But I think, I think ultimately the keys to the future are going to be in Ainge's hands because I think it's going to be a traitor. He's going to stay. I would think they would keep him. That's interesting. And I agree with you guys that the potential landing points are very interesting because I also I, I don't know if there are teams that would be super willing to acquire him without any sort of commitment. And the new CBA is really weird with this to go on. And I think that was one of the sticking points in terms of the rumored Sacramento deal is that while I think Sacramento has an interest in Rajon Rondo, I'm not sure they have an interest in Rajon Rondo without a commitment that he will be and back the, the after big them. thing there is in that deal, they were getting some, some really nice prospects, that reported deal, and who knows how close that really was to being reality. But McLemore and Thomas are both really nice players, but neither of them are going to be part of your big three. And the whole thing nowadays is you got to build a big three if you want to be a title contender. I mean, that's pretty much how all great teams are built at this point. And that's the model that almost every single organization is going for. And so what's the point of trading away, away Rondo if you're trying to get in more superstars to try to propel your team and try to make your team more attractive to free agents and other players trying to get traded? So why would you get rid of one of those superstars when they're so hard to come by? Because Rondo's a top 20 player in the league. And the whole point is teams are trying to get multiple top 20 players, and there's 30 teams. So... It doesn't make sense for as far as trying to build a great championship team and try to build a contender in the near future. Why would you get rid of one of those great players? Absolutely. And, and to that point, too, 
you know, you want Rondo for the long term if you're going to deal with deal for him. So why would you deal for him without a uh, without a contract like that? I also think that his value on the trade market and really how the general I don't know basketball fans in general kind of view him is kind of it's much different I think than any superstar player. I mean I agree with Jared that he's one of the best players in the league, but he's a player that is that good but looks better with more talent around him. And in most cases, every player is going to look better with more talent around him for a variety of different reasons, unless you're LeBron James or Kevin Durant. But he's a guy who not only makes all-star players even better, but he just, his his counting stats, I guess you'd call them, look better when he has better players around him. You saw what he did with Garnett and Pearson. If the Celtics can get some other talent like that around him, I think, Oddly enough, his value is going to go up, but also in the same hand, the Celtics are going to have already made the decision, you know, to keep him long term. So it really doesn't matter. But I mean, he's that kind of guy. He's he's the kind of guy who's going to put up better numbers and superficially look better when he has more talent around him. Good points all around. We'll move on to the draft. So for this, it's obviously there's so much that's in flux. We don't know what pick they're going to have and everything like that. But so. I'm more interested in, if you guys have been following it, what players you are most interested in getting or if particularly don't want the Celtics to get in this class. I'll start on that one. So the top three, who cares? It's like either the, whether it's Wiggins, Parker, or Embiid, all three of those, it's a parade in the streets of Boston. It, it really doesn't matter at that point which one they get. But after that, there's not a there's not really a single player that's like a great fit for this team because this team... Their biggest need is a reliable perimeter score and a low post defender. And you've got a bunch of, I mean, you got, you got a few tweeners basically, uh, but you got like Marcus Smart, who I think overlaps with a lot of what Avery Bradley and Rajon Rondo cover. You have Julius Randle that overlaps with what Kelly Olynyk and Jared Solinger and even Brandon Bass cover. Aaron Gordon that he, he doesn't give you the offensive potency that you want. And then there's Dante Exum, who for me is is the best player available for the Celtics and just overall after that top three there. Now he he's potentially big enough to play the three. It, he doesn't he's not an ideal fit in the NBA to play the three. It looks like, but if he really is six six, if he put if he's able to put on muscle, he might be able to handle it. And his IQ and his motor are are good enough that he probably could handle guarding threes when he has to. But he reminds me a lot of Manu Ginobili and that's what I really love about him. And if they if they can get a player like that, you can you could probably make that work next to Avery Bradley if Exum becomes a good enough shooter. He's not as ideal be, uh, as Parker or Wiggins because he doesn't give you the reliable scoring that they were hoping Jeff Green would give, but it doesn't look like that's what Jeff Green's able to do. Yeah, I mean, obviously they only have the top three pick. It's kind of a situation where I believe it's a situation where they can't go wrong. And we're kind of agreeing here uh, that they need a rim protector or somebody who can score. And, I mean, right now they're slotted if the season ended today. Odds-wise, they'd be at like five and then 18 from Brooklyn. And I think somebody like Exum intrigues me, too, because, well, he intrigues me, but for different reasons. Why can't he be the eventual replacement for Avery Bradley, either in the starting lineup or overall? You can play him at the two. Bradley can either slide to the bench, or if they decide that Bradley isn't somebody that they see in their long-term future, they can let him go knowing they have him in their back pocket and then address another need later on in the first round. Are there any guys in the later first round that you've seen, let's say in the tournament or wherever, that are guys that you stand out to you as this is a really good guy uh, Well, for the depending on who they take up top, Kyle Anderson out of UCLA, 
He reminds me a lot of Jeff Green, actually, of all people, although he looks like he's a better ball handler. But he's he fits that potency off the perimeter and the length that they want there, right? I mean, he's got, what, a 7'3 wingspan, and he's standing at about 6'9 or so, and he can handle the rock really well. So they need somebody besides Rajon Rondo that can handle the ball. That's That's the big thing is – that they really don't have anyone else on the roster that they're confident in handle that can handle the ball that can run pick and roll that you that you can run a play for. I mean Jeff Green, he can explode from the perimeter, but he's not a guy that you can square up somebody one on one and cross him over. He doesn't run pick and roll. He doesn't really pass off the dribble stuff like that. And Avery Bradley, they tried so much to try to get him to run the pick and roll to try to be a penetrator. And it didn't. It just didn't really work with Avery Bradley. He just doesn't have the confidence in his handle. He doesn't have the tight dribble. It's it just. It's just not there. So Kyle Anderson's a really good fit, and he's someone that could still be there for the mid eighteen. So he, he's probably the person I'd be targeting if they still have a need for a perimeter scorer. I'm going to shoot a little higher, only because I think this guy is going to slide down when it comes to June because the memories are going to fade away, and people are going to be more um, in love with upside. Doug McDermott. I think right now people are thinking he's probably a, a 10 to 12, maybe a touch higher, but I think his stock might drop a little bit. He's a guy who can obviously get buckets, and that's something that the Celtics are going to need off the bench. And I think he's an intriguing guy. I think he's the kind of player that Ainge might like, and I do think, as odd as it may sound, that he's going to slide come June. Do you guys think that the connection between Jabari Parker and Danny Ainge is something sufficient enough to real to maybe push him up over one of the other guys in the top three? I don't think so. I think and that I think that goes back to just what I said earlier. But Ainge really sentimentality isn't really his thing. If he has a connection with a player, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to value him over somebody else. I think he's in a, a big enough position that if it comes down to it, and he has to decide to the Celtics pick first. He's going to really weigh all those options equally. I'd be surprised if he put any sort of connection ahead of anything other than what gets the Celtics to where they want to be, and that's contending for a title. I was going to say, there, there are certain discrimination you, laws against hiring someone for their religion, so I'm not sure how much it <laughs> applies in drafting a player, but technically you're choosing to hire a player, so... You, you certainly can't outwardly advertise that you're drafting a player for his religious beliefs. I mean, Tim Tebow, that was obviously a thing. But with Tim Tebow, they phrased it, as, everybody phrased it as good moral character and hard and leadership skills and all that kind of stuff, which which was totally true, of course. Um, he just couldn't make up for it with his arm. But you, I, I, I can't imagine that it would – I've got to imagine that it would legally be discrimination to state or to claim that you were – interested in Jabari Parker because of his Mormon faith. Well, I think it would, that would be a more interesting question for the Utah Jazz, considering their everything with with all that situation. But with Avery Bradley, what I keep thinking with him is that the Celtics must be wishing that he had one more year Absolutely. before he hit restricted free agency, because there's just so much to yeah, still figure I, I out I forgot to mention that, and thanks, Andrew, for, uh, for bringing that up, because it's a really important point is if you're drafting Dante Exum, that means that you can let Avery Bradley go because they're pretty, they've got a lot of similarities. And they don't want to let Avery Bradley go. They've been pretty clear that they're big fans of Avery. And obviously he's worth the money for his game, but the question is his health because he just has not stayed healthy at all, basically in his entire career. And so that, that's a, it, it, that it's gotten to the point that it's a legitimate concern. And he's hurt again right now, and the timing is unbelievable for that because if he doesn't play again this season, I mean, how much does that make him, does that make him a red flag to the rest of the league? And how much does that lower his uh, his contract negotiating with the Celtics? So that's going to be 
a really, really fascinating storyline, and it's going to be very difficult to gauge. But with, with Avery, the timing, it, it is pretty difficult for them because he's a year before Rondo would be able to walk, and it's a year before the Celtics have that ginormous cap space. So if Avery Bradley was a free agent next year, that would mean that they'd be able to let him hit the free agency market and be able to throw offers all over the place. But now they have to lock themselves into a contract with him, not really knowing what next year holds, or they can let him walk and just hope they can find something better in the draft or next year. So there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of extra variables that come into play with Bradley's free agency coming a year before their big cap space opening up. Absolutely, and since Jerry covered the meat and potatoes of the, the actual situation, I'll tell you what I would do, and I'd let him walk. I, I know they like him. I know he puts in the work. I know he, he seems like he seems like he's been snake bitten with injuries. The injuries, obviously, a, a real concern, but I think more so you look at his offensive performance. He's, he has gotten better than, than what he was. He's still a plus defender, but his defensive metrics actually haven't been that good. His defensive rating, which is flawed in many ways, we all know, has actually gone up every year he's been in the league. Um, his offense has isn't quite at the level I think the Celtics hoped it would be in his fourth season. Part of that also because of injuries. But his shot is so inconsistent. His rookie year, he was 34% overall. His second year, he was close to 50. His third, he was at 40. This year, he's up to like 43. He's up and down. He hasn't had consistent improvements on that end. He's increased his three-point attempts as career has gone along, but they're actually down this year, which may, again, be a fixture of the injury. So it's really, as Joy points out as well, it's it's a fixture of what is he. If he's healthy, is he better than what he's been? Is that the reason that he hasn't taken a step forward offensively? If that's not the reason, then I say let him go. And, you know, it, it seems like they, they do want to keep him, but – I'd reconsider that if I was them. I don't think he's improved enough through four seasons to garner a long-term commitment on a team that's going to want to be smart with their money, not because they can't spend a nice amount of money, but because they're trying to put together a team that can contend sooner rather than later. The other possibility with him is something that I refer to as the Nene special because Masai Ujiri, I think, is the first one to really do this well. And especially if, as Jared yep. said, his value might be going down because of his injuries, is the idea if the market on him deflates enough, it could be worth it to keep him without necessarily having the idea of retaining him long term. So that allows them, if they want to be a little better next year, well, actually substantially better, they could retain him, but if they're if it's at a number that other teams will, let's say, tolerate or be interested in, then they could view him as a trade asset rather yeah, than right as now, a core his market value is at about eight million, and that's not factoring for whether or not there's going to be deflation in the market as the CBA continues to start to really tighten the belt on teams. But right now, it's probably at about eight million. Now, if they can get him for six million a year, you pretty much you you go for the Nene special, and that's exactly what I also had in mind. And I'm glad that you called it the Nene special because that is a great name for it, and we should lock that in right now as the permanent name for this type of signing. But if you can get him for six million, that means that pretty much any team in the league that wants him could trade for him. So that makes him very movable. And Nene was making a lot more money than that. And Nene was like what thirteen million or so, and they were still able to pull that off. So at six million, Avery Bradley still he remains very movable throughout the three or maybe even four years of his contract. And he's obviously good enough that if you if you have him and he's healthy, 
at $6 million a year, that's a fantastic steal, and it's a great value, and it's comparable to what the Celtics are getting right now, where they're pay- they're paying a max player in Rajon Rondo a lot less than he should be getting. So th- it's a no-brainer to go for Avery on that. And you know what? If you draft Dante Exum, you let Dante Exum come up behind Avery Bradley. You try to get him some work with Avery and playing at the three, and then when you think Dante's ready to take over and become a star, then you trade Avery. I'm on board with that. I, I would give him $6 million. And maybe even not trade Bradley if, you know, they retain him and that can become the superstar. I prefer Bradley off the bench, personally. So uh, I think, as Jerry pointed out, there a lot is going to have to come down to whether or not he comes back on the floor this year. Maybe in uh, in hindsight, the silver lining, if he doesn't come back, would be, you know, that value does come down and the Celtics are able to retain him and keep him on a tradable contract and keep a solid roster spot and keep a guy that they're familiar with and Rondo's familiar with. That's the point we haven't brought up too, as they build towards what they're looking for. There's one thing I forgot to say there. I said that assuming that $6 million is too expensive to hold on the bench because I'm seeing that the salary, that the, the amount of salary the teams can pay out to players is going to start shrinking a bit. But Perna, you're right in that at least in the, in the next two or two years or so, $6 million is, is, more, is more than enough really to pay at what your six-man. And so it, it actually would make sense for Avery Bradley to get $6 million and still be coming off the bench. So the last major topic that I wanted to talk with you guys is something that I call the timetable of contention. And basically what that the idea of that is that whatever a team's peak is, they're going to have to peak at some point. And what I was intrigued by is you can say what, what you think that is, whether you think that's, that this can eventually be a conference final team, title team, whatever. But what, what's more interesting to me is when you think that's going to happen. So uh, I'll start with Andrew. When when do you think, based on what we know now, and it might, it's really speculative with the Celtics, when do you think that they're going to be at well, about the right range? Based on what we know now and kind of what you know, the three of us have kind of seemed to agree on with you know, keeping Rondo, you know, drafting a player high this year, getting some other complimentary pieces from the draft and so forth, I'm kind of looking at 2017. Three years from now, that's a top-level pick, and Embiid, a Parker, a Wiggins, whoever, in their third season. That's Rondo still kind of on the maybe the end of his prime, but still prime years. That's maybe a Selinger at a higher level than he is now. And that's turning either an expiring contract this coming summer into into a complimentary piece or a borderline all-star or somebody that's signed outright. That's a few seasons into them being there. That's also probably the end of of a Miami run in terms of dominance, whether that's because the Big Three breaks up or because of the Big Three's age. We've already seen concerns about Wade for several years now, so where will he be in three years from now, we can only imagine. Um, Who knows where where Indiana will be in the East at that point. They looked to be a a force for four or five years earlier in the season. Now it's are they even going to be a force this year? And what will come of them this summer with Stevenson and West probably won't be there in three years, whether he's retired or whether he's not the player he was, whether he's somewhere else. Um, You have some other teams that are going to be question marks like the Knicks. What are they going to do? But if you look at how the East looks now, how things should progress for three years from now with the contenders, I think realistically you can kind of look at 2017 as a good starting point with maybe 2018 being more likely. But if cards fall properly, you may even look at 2016. Yeah, so the summer of uh, 2015 is going to be really fascinating because that's when the Celtics have max uh, cap space there, and there's going to be a good free agent class. So they are going to have a lot of options on the table. So they're going to have 
they're going to have that 2016 draft pick, which will be a year from then from the Nets. And the Nets might that might be a pretty high pick at that point. It's unprotected, so that could be a really high draft pick at that point because the Nets don't seem like they have a very long shelf life on whatever it is that they're doing right now. And we'll find out next month exactly what is that the Nets are doing. But the Celtics, they they could have an All Star caliber player in this upcoming draft. And then in the next draft, they're probably going to have a late lottery pick because they're probably not going to be as bad next year as they were this year. But they're going to have a lot of talent on board, and then they're going to have the open cap space, and they're going to have so many trade assets. And you know that Danny Ainge, either this offseason or next trade deadline, is going to be able to pull off a major move. So you're, you're looking, I think Perna's uh, 2017 projection of them being, a, like let's say, a second-round playoff team by then is pretty accurate. Because they just have they have so many options to make a massive swoop in the next basically starting from this June and going all the way to next June or July or so. So they just have they have they have the ability to make a big leap forward. And it's not like because usually teams take four years basically to rebuild if they do it well. And this is year one. So that would be year four, basically, in 2017. And they have a big chance to make a huge leap next, at least not the, the upcoming season, but the one after that. So the possibility for them to be in the second round or the conference finals in 2017 is pretty high if they're able to actually do a good job rebuilding. So the other question I wanted to ask you is, I have residual bitterness, even though I'm not a Celtics guy at all, that they didn't draft Giannis. And I was wondering how that would have affected the way you it, saw this. I mean, team. it would have revolutionized it because Giannis is doing that on Milwaukee, one of the worst teams in NBA history. Could you imagine in a, in a decent organization like the Celtics how, how well that he would be playing and what type of promise and hype he would have? It's incredible. And the thing is, he immediately overlaps so much with what Jeff Green does. But basically, Jeff Jeff Green might have been traded already if Giannis if they had drafted Giannis and Olenek's good and they like Olenek and he shows a lot of promise. But it, pretty clearly, Giannis is the better player at this point and probably has more upside. So I think everybody, basically anyone that didn't have like a top three pick in that draft, is is basically kicking themselves for not drafting him. He's proven himself immediately to be probably a top seven talent. Absolutely. I mean, it, the thought entered my mind a few weeks into the season that that could have been the case and. Uh, I'm not originally from the Boston area, so I, I'm thinking to myself, wow, would I be like buying Celtics gear if they had gotten Giannis? Because, I mean, I spent a good hour collecting quotes from Bucks staff members and everybody on opening night in Boston to put a, together a piece about Giannis because, I mean, he's just been the player that kind of everybody seems infatuated with this season. And great point by Jared, he's doing that in Milwaukee. Could you imagine if he had been in Boston, not only just the way the public would have gotten to see more of him, and I think he probably his profile would have been raised, but imagine what that does for the Celtics going forward and into what they need to do to become that contender again. The kid is so young, so you can't put the expectations of him making them so much better this season on him. Obviously, that's not the case because if he was that good, the Bucks wouldn't be this bad. But, you know, where do they go going forward? I think there's a little bit more certainty with, what the roster is going to look like, at least for the next four or five years. Again, assuming they keep Rondo, maybe you say, okay, well, we, guess what? We can keep Sollinger. You know, we'll keep Giannis. We'll see what we want to do with Jeff Green, whether we want to let that contract play out or trade him. And then they kind of draft along the same lines with a perimeter score or a rim protector, but they just seem to be, while they're not in a horrible situation now, imagine how much I think better of a situation they would have been had they picked him. 
I was going to say, the, well, he so and wait, Kelly Olynyk no, have Jay. almost the exact same numbers. They're both averaging seven points a game and about four and a half to five rebounds a game. And Kelly's even shooting a little bit better. So, I mean, let's be fair. Giannis, who, based on the eyeball test, looks like a top seven pick. His numbers are not nearly at the level of Michael Carter-Williams, who's having an unbelievable year. Um, and it's not – it's really – there's not a huge difference between the numbers that he and Kelly Olynyk are putting up. But – when you look at what Giannis brings, and it's when you just do it based on the eye test, you you definitely would probably want Giannis over uh, Kelly Olynyk. Well, the other difference there is that Giannis is substantially younger yes. and has yeah. played basically zero competition. That's the craziest thing about him, and the thing that blows my mind is I've watched a lot of guys, and I've watched a lot of guys make big transitions. I think of Brandon Jennings, let's say, you know, Brandon Jennings going from Roma and coming back to the NBA and basically starting as a first-year player in Milwaukee. And what he has been able to do, basically playing against no one for his entire life, just blows me away. Because Olenek, he's a very polished guy. He played at a very good college. He played for the Canadian national team. And to see that in a guy who's... I believe he's 19 now, who was basically playing just random people in Greece, is absolutely incredible. And I'm really intrigued to see what, what happens yeah, with his brother as well. Yeah, he was playing in second division in Greece, which, I mean, it's hard to make a direct comparison to what that would be here, but uh, I've heard people say it's considerably lower than the D-League. Um, and, you know, wasn't lighting that league up either. And, you know, Jared... The stats, you know, you're right on with the stats. He's not lighting up the counting stats here either in his rookie season. He's not putting up the numbers that rookie of the year candidates like, you know, Oladipo or, or MCW are. And his numbers look similar to Olenek. But just to be blatantly honest, I think maybe 90 out of 100, if not more, people would take Giannis over Olenek at this point because I think Olenek is maybe an inch or two away from the ceiling. I could see him being a double-double guy, solid rotation player, a solid starter, or a solid, you know, sixth or seventh guy for a really, really good team. But Giannis, I think, granted, he could stay where he is. His growth could be completely stunted. We could all be, you know, just irrationally infatuated with this guy. Or, you know, he could become a Paul George type player. So I think that's where it hurts the Celtics that they didn't take a chance on him on draft night. Yeah, I, I well, I I disagree on Kelly's ceiling. I think Ryan Anderson's a guy that I would liken him to, although that means he has to become a really deadly shooter, which is uh, not I wouldn't project him that high right now. But I mean, if you if you read through that draft, so you got I mean, at the top of the draft, you'd have Oladipo, Carter Williams, probably Trey Burke, but then you got guys like Mason Plumley and Gorgie Dang, and those are the guys that I think the Celtics should be really upset that they didn't draft because those are two guys that fit that rim protector mold. And have turned out to be one, two of the best rookies in the league this year. And Jang was a guy that I thought they should have drafted because he reminded me a lot of Serge Ibaka and his ability to pass out of, the, out of the high post, to shoot from 15 feet, and just have ridiculous athleticism around the rim. And I, I, I think that they probably should still be kicking themselves for not drafting Jang. But Ateka Kumpo, I tried at least there pronouncing it. And Olenek, you, you've still got two guys that are on the precipice of being like top 10 rookies in this current class. And the Celtics probably shouldn't be looking at it as that we made a big mistake. It's just rather that 
Giannis just shows he just shows promise at a level that not really any of the other rookies do except for maybe Oladipo and Carter Williams but it's with Giannis it's that he second division of the Greek League I think that's more like playing in like a big like the Big East or something like that right now because the Big East isn't as strong as it used to be but it's it's like playing in like a a middle big college conference probably at this at this point if not even lower than that so he's it's basically he's basically like an underdog type rookie and he's performing at a level that you would hope for out of like a guy that was a star in one of the major conferences and was experienced in college so to be doing that and he just turned 19 it's it's pretty incredible potential wise and as the sponsor of his basketball reference page personally (laughs) i enjoy it a lot (laughs) best 20 dollars i spent in a long time are there any other uh, Celtics related topics that you guys thought of that you'd want to, or facts or whatever that you guys? Well, would I know want to the general about? public cares so much about whether or not Vitor Favarani is going to be back next year. <laughs> there's there, there's not really a lot to talk about with this team besides basically their three biggest scores and that it's you know, what happens with Rondo. How are they going to build around him? How are they going to keep him? Do you want to get rid of Jeff Green? And is Avery Bradley worth signing this offseason? Everything else at this point is kind of just like fluff. Personally, I'd just like to say I've been shocked at how the season developed with some of the veterans that they acquired as spare parts last offseason in, in Gerald Wallace and Keith Logan. Jared, I, I'm not, excuse me for forgetting, I'm not sure if you were there. I think you were there on media day. And yeah. Gerald Wallace looked like the saddest puppy in the world. Uh, he looked absolutely miserable. He had kind of been MIA and he kind of spoke through gritted teeth and it seemed like he's either going to pack his bags, he's going to force his way out of here, something is going to give here because he does not want to be here and that was it. Well, fast forward a few months, he's somewhat of a leader in, for this team. He was playing hard. He's been, you know, really great with the media in the locker room. He's put on a smile, whether or not he truly has one or not. He goes down with a, you know, a season-ending injury. He's hobbling around on crutches, still around the team, still attending the game, still sitting on the bench. Meanwhile, Keith Bogans is now the one that's kind of been a disappearing act. Not kind of, he has been. And he's been nowhere to be found. Excused from the team. Nobody wants to talk about it. And he's just home collecting his check. So it's kind of odd how back in September, late September, early October, it seemed like Gerald Wallace was the one who quit on arrival. But in reality, he's turned into an ultimate team player, and Keith Bogans has been the one that was quit. I would say that was really fascinating. I realize, because, oh, you know, Gerald Wallace's media day press conference was basically him talking about how furious and betrayed he was that he was traded. Because he, he had like just signed with Brooklyn just a little bit before that, and then they shipped him out of there after one bad season. So he, he really talked a lot early on about how betrayed he felt, how pissed off he was that he was in a losing environment and how mad he was at everybody else on the team for being losers. So eventually they started to play a little bit better. He started to kind of like establish himself as a good rotational player and the mood really changed. And he also developed a lot of good relationships and a lot of friendships in this locker room. And you see him now and he like, he loves being in the Celtics locker room and it's just so different from where it was in the beginning. And he was insistent in the beginning that it wasn't, it was no offense to the Celtics. It was just him feeling betrayed by the Nets. And I think his kind of being a wall for a little bit right before the trade was probably him telling his agent, I, I'm at the end of my career, get me traded again so I can go play and compete for a title. And once that fell through, he figured might as well embrace it and try to become attractive for other teams trying to trade for him. Uh, and that with Bogans, the thing is Bogans wasn't playing at all. And he's basic, he was basically in like the last season or two of his 
career. So you can understand why he was so upset, and he wanted to make sure that he got out of here and didn't risk getting injured so that he was he wouldn't have to retire. So he just wanted to stay healthy and then get a chance to sign with the competing team for next year, which is probably going to be his last season in the league if he is able to get signed. The other thing I realized that I, I can't, I'm so mad at myself that I hadn't asked you guys yet is Brad Stevens. Are you sold on him as an NBA coach long-term? Is he what you expected? Everything well, it's funny because he hasn't Brad really Stevens won anything yet. I mean, his, his team is has one of the worst records in the history of the, the third worst record in the history of the franchise yet everyone in the league can't stop talking about how amazing brad stevens is and not just in the organization but opposing coaches opposing executives opposing players they all talk about how great brad stevens is he's just so unbelievably admired around the league i mean while he's he certainly deserves the admiration not factoring for the wins and losses. The thing that coaches are judged on is wins and losses, and he obviously doesn't deserve it yet. But it was just the way that the campaign that the Celtics trotted out when they introduced him was unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it was just so overwhelmingly strong and positive that everybody just fell in love with them from the start. And the, the whole first impressions thing just has never really rang more true than with Brad Stevens. You know, they did promote him perfectly. I think he gets a lot of the admiration, deserves a lot of credit for what he's done in his first season, for how he's handled things. It was a recent game, I don't know if it was last week or the beginning of this week, where he hit the mark where he's lost more games this season with Boston than he did at Butler. He's been through an incredible amount of losing. He did, granted, he did know he was coming into a situation that wasn't ideal, that a situation where he was going to lose a ton of games, dozens and dozens of games and he wasn't going to exactly have a full deck at all times or at all um, in his first NBA season. But I think he's really dealt with things well, and I think that's something that, while it may be an old-fashioned way of looking at things, that just he's been a good soldier, he's been positive, which is what you'd expect from a college coach, in this adversity, I value that. And, and I also think he said recently, you know, he's not sure how to grade himself yet, but he knows he's done a lot wrong. And his list of things that he's done wrong is, is long. So he's a guy who's willing to take account of his ability. So I think people admire that as well. As far as his future in the NBA as a coach with the Celtics, right now he hasn't been, you know, he's left some growing pains, but he hasn't been so bad where he's one of those guys who got a chance and, you know, he screwed up so quickly and, and so obviously that, you know, he's not going to get more chances down the road if things don't work out in Boston. So I think he does have staying power because he is young and he, he sees what he needs to grow at and he's, he's going to do it. And, you know, I think ultimately in Boston it comes down to what type of team is built around him and if they become a contender quick enough, are they going to say, you know, is Ainge going to say, okay, maybe Brad Stevens needs more NBA seasoning as a coach. Do we need to look elsewhere to capitalize on where we are now? But that's putting the cart way ahead of the horse at this point. And uh, I think you – you really can't ask for more out of Brad Stevens so far this year. The other thing that I find fascinating about him as a as a non-Boston media guy is that when I've interacted with him, he's a very smart, personable, genial guy, which I think really helps in terms of both the media perception, which is which is important, and also the fan perception. And the media and fan ones sometimes interact with each other because he it, it seems like he means what he says, and he says things in a good way, and so that makes it harder for fans and media members. Well, like nobody to turn wants on to turn on him because I mean th that. That babyish face and smiles, like every everybody loves and adores him. He, he's just he's so he's so marketable and he's so believable. And he just he, there's something about him that just kind of instills that I know what I'm doing, I know what I want to do, 
I know that we're not able to get there yet. And I mean, that's the big thing that I was going to quickly say is just, I mean, any, if you want to like try to uh, judge Brad Stevens on the team's record, just look at the roster. Just look at the guys that are playing out there. I mean, it's totally a mismatch. You got, you you got two like six, two guards and you got three, six, eight bigs. And that's like the entire roster. Basically it's totally a mismatch. It's just not a team that can really win consistently at the NBA level. So you, you don't really, there's not really any point of trying to really read into the Celtics record and they're doing all sorts of experimentation and stuff like that, that they're really just focused on internal development and trying to get these guys to be better players. So w- w- Brad has been pretty honest with all the different things that he's been trying to do over the year. And he's been very accepting of criticism and he's been very open and criticizing his players in a positive way and criticizing himself and the team in a positive way. And there's just something about the, just the way that he talks about things. He exudes basically like a hatred for losing. And he sometimes seems like crazy in the way that he talks about it and the way that he goes about it. And it, and what's been so crucial about that is that everybody sees that well, there's been the whole thing about are the Celtics tanking and should the Celtics be tanking? And the players can always say, no, we're not tanking and all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't it doesn't quite resonate the way that it does with Brad Stevens losing his mind over one blown pick and roll assignment in a 13 point loss. Those are the kind of things that he does, and that that really tells people that he's working his butt off and that he cares so deeply about this team, and that's where the trust factor comes in from the public and the media. One other thing I'd like to add, too, is, I mean, if you you were to look at the situation, you know, two years ago and say the Celtics are going to hire, you know, a a coach out of college for his first NBA job and you're going to follow Doc Rivers, you would have said that's an incredibly unenviable position to be in. Given the success that Doc had, you know, with the big three, winning a title, how beloved Doc was, well, come to find out, the end of Doc's career in Boston wasn't going to go as clean as originally it was thought. The team was torn down, so being his successor wasn't really the the issue that it it could or people thought it should have been. And Stevens has kind of slid in, and while people in the media loved Doc, Jared knows this. I know this. Doc played games with what he said. He held things back, and when Constantly. he did when he did hold things back, he didn't do it in an, in the most honest manner. And, and I love Doc. I love covering Doc because you, you know I, I found him I found him enjoyable and engaging. But Brad Stevens is so to the point. He's so honest. He seems so clean when it comes to that kind of stuff. He, he's going to tell you exactly what he knows. He doesn't seem to be playing any games. And maybe he hasn't learned that yet. That certainly could be the case. But to this point, he's been much more truthful and much more just cut and dry um, than Doc Rivers was. Yeah, and Brad Stevens uh, doesn't protect his players in the way that Doc does. I mean, I I had one time where I asked Doc a question, basically insinuating that a player was playing bad defense. I'll say it was Jordan Crawford, because I'm not really afraid of criticizing Jordan Crawford's defense. And Danny, you've you've been watching Jordan Crawford up close (laughs) this year, so you definitely know it all too well. And I was criticizing Jordan Crawford's own defense, and Doc just said straight up, I have no idea what you're talking about. I saw great defense. Now, if you go back and watch the tape, it was some pretty abysmal defense. So, I mean, Crawford was running his butt off, but he was running pretty much in the wrong direction every single time. So, you know, Doc will Doc will basically 
we'll say speak mistruths or blatantly lie or however you want to label it. But Doc basically his protecting his players is kind of like the most important thing for him. Well, Brad Stevens hasn't really had an issue in just of saying, yeah, this guy's not doing that, especially Jared Solinger missing threes because that's a big thing. But the difference, though, is that Doc was in the heat of playoff runs and championship runs all those years. Well, Brad Stevens, like the Celtics don't really have anything to lose right now because they're losing every single game. So it's not a it's not as big of a deal to criticize someone because it's not like they're the weak link in a very tightly run ship right now. The whole thing's a mess. No one, there's not a single player on this team. that's having a really good season. There's a bunch of guys having inconsistently decent seasons, but there's not a single player on the Celtics that you could say is really overachieving or really improving like themselves. Cause Jared Solinger for all the promise that he has, same thing with Kelly Olynyk. they've had very inconsistent seasons. So the burden to protect the players, reputations and chemistry and the functioning of the unit isn't as high for Brad Stevens as it was for Doc in all these championship years. Well, thank you guys oh, both fun. so much for, for coming on. No problem, Danny. Anytime. Thanks so much to my guests, Jared Weiss of the Garden Report postgame show CLNS Radio, Celtics Blog. You can follow him on Twitter at CLNS underscore J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S. And Andrew Perna of Real GM, so you can read him there, and you can follow him on Twitter at A-N-D-R-E-W underscore P-E-R-N-A. I really appreciate them coming on because this was an unusual undertaking. I had never tried a three-person one before, and we record using Skype, which is interesting, and I had a better idea of who was talking when in some circumstances than they did, but they did a really good job. It was a blast and a half to do, and... If you are interested or you have people that you think would be a good fit for this for any other team, I am open to any and all suggestions. There are some teams that I have people in mind for. There are other teams that I honestly have very little idea. So you can reach out to me. You can hit me up on email, which is daniel.larue, L-E-R-O-U-X, at realgm.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny Larue. That's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. The idea is to generally try to time these with when people get knocked out, so I would love to do as many non-playoff teams as possible during the first round and after the offseason, and then hit up teams as they get knocked out. And At first that'll be a lot with eight, and then it'll slow down and get, get easier. So I appreciate any and all suggestions and comments because that's how the show gets better. So thank you so much for listening. If you have not listened to part one yet, please do. It's really good. I'm incredibly proud of it. If you have listened to it, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to both these. I'm really proud of what we have. Thank you. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bok, bok, meow, meow. 
dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to geico.com and you can save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves.